Hi, friends, and welcome to All Things Relatable, a place where stories are shared. It's hard to put a value on a story because the lasting effects it can have are often priceless. An individual's story has the potential to impact our lives in tremendous ways. My hope for you in joining me today is that this episode resonates with you and that you leave enlightened, ignited, and inspired because it only takes one moment to spark a change and leave an everlasting effect. I absolutely resonate with my next guest, Gerald's belief that anything is possible. He believes that the only limit is in the people themselves. When you think about it, that's the deciding factor. The people who believe that anything is possible will find a way. Did your parents ever use the line on you when pigs can fly? When there was something that you wanted so badly and you thought maybe just maybe that you could have it. And then your parents shattered your dreams with that famous line. Well, I've got news for you. Pigs can fly. Go check out the Doritos commercial. And if pigs can fly, then anything is possible. So like I mentioned earlier, my next guest, Gerald believes this to be true as well. Gerald's got lots of cool stuff on his resume, pro skateboarder, podcast host, author, and motivational speaker. So I can't wait to dive in and find about all of the dreams that he's turned into a reality and the ones he's currently working on. Hey, Gerald, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Candice. It's such an honor. I'm glad we, we connected and finally got to, to do this. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Yay, I can't wait to dive into your story. So I want to start here. So let's back up to your childhood for a minute because you faced a few medical struggles at an early age. So can you talk about how things initially started and how you ended up picking up skateboarding at 11? Uh, yeah, it, it, you know, my early childhood, when I was born, I, like a lot of people, I was a pre- premature baby, but I was four pounds. <laughs> so I was four pounds and I was born. And uh, my liver wasn't working right. So I was fluorescent orange with jaundice and they had me strapped down in an incubator and all that kind of good stuff, lead packs on my eyes. And I remember my mom telling me the story when my great grandma came in, she just said like, she was from North Carolina and she's like, what's wrong with it? Like she thought like something was completely wrong and they were just getting my functions working at that point. Um, and then they realized my legs weren't correct either. My, my feet were facing each other and sort of backwards and my femurs were out of whack. So for the first couple of years, I had to wear what's called a Gatlin splint. And it's basically your shoes are connected by a bar in between to straighten out your legs. And my mom said I could motor all around the house with that thing. I get in and out of the crib. I, I that's how I learned to walk. And, um, and that's, what my first two years were and that went into correctional shoes and correctional shoes ironically uh turned into ice skates at four years old but um but one of the raddest things about that time in my life and even though at that first you know the first seven years you're basically a sponge most scientists say it's about the first seven years or so before we start developing our own opinions and so that first seven years my mom never and I might get choked up, but my mom never told me I was different. So I figured everybody went through what I was going through. Like she didn't stop me from doing anything. She didn't like try to overprotect me. And it was such a blessing that I didn't realize till way later in life. She let me, you know, go out in the park and, and play football and, and, and horseplay and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm, I'm very fortunate 
to have the parents that I did to let me experience life like that instead of an overprotective bubble. Um, so, so that's super cool. But at four years old, they turned into hockey skates. Five years old, these, these raggedy legs turned into goalie, goalie pads, and I started stopping hockey pucks. And that was my very first passion. I love being in the ice rink and I love stopping hockey pucks. So that ended up being from about the age of five to 20 and a half, which was the last, uh, that last year I played juniors. You couldn't pay, play past 20 years old. That was the last year I played serious organized hockey. But um, that early, early start was, was so influential on, on the future of, of where I ended up. And you brought up skateboarding at 11. A uh, childhood friend decided to visit visit us back here in uh, Detroit, Michigan. And he had moved down to Florida and he came to visit for the summer, had a big skateboard. I said, can I ride that thing? And it was the first time I had ever seen a wide wooden skateboard because all we had here were the little plastic boards with small, you know, wheels on them. And he brought a uh, Schmidt stick Monty Nolder was the exact board he brought. And I got to ride that around for the summer. My father, uh, seeing that I enjoyed it, decided to go to the local, I think Dunham's or Toys R Us and buy me a, a cheaper version of that board. And I never looked back. A skateboard has been part of my life ever since then. And it has taken me places I could never have imagined at such a young age, just from having my friend Rob Delaterante come up and visit from Florida that summer was life-changing for me. Oh, I love to hear that because I feel like in so many stories, it's that one experience with something that completely can transform and change someone's life and take them to different places. So whether it's like skateboarding or hockey or maybe exploring um, pottery or, or whatever it is, but it's like that one initial sometimes experience with it where you're like just a discovery that will take you to all these different places. So initially you said you played hockey. Were you also skateboarding like at the same time Were you focused on both or was it one over the other? Uh, well, hockey was still, that's what I was in my heart. Like I, I, everybody thought I was going to be in the NHL. You know, I was drafted at uh, 14 into the North American junior hockey league, which at the time Michigan was a hub for amateur hockey in the country. I mean, folks from Canada, where you're at, uh, came to Michigan to be noticed. It was crazy. I mean, legends in the NHL, uh, Eric Lindros, who is a very well-known name. One year he was down in our training camp here, just outside of Detroit. So hockey was, was really what I thought I was going to be doing, but my skateboard went everywhere with, I remember going to play uh, in Sweden. We, we were flying to Sweden the day after Christmas to play a tournament. And my hot, my uh, skateboard was in my hockey bag. And it was hilarious because Stockholm, Sweden is almost like two cities because it's, it's dark so much of the year there in light. They have like a city on top and then underneath is sort of like a whole nother city. They have shops and everything where when the weather is super bad, you can just walk down these steps and, and shop and do your thing unimpeded. And I remember going down there and riding my skateboard on the benches and setting a hat out and people were giving me money. Like I was like a sideshow for them, you know? But um, yeah, the guys who I played with, they knew my skateboard was coming with me. And, and most of my life, um, I wasn't really a partier. And so they'd be, they'd be doing their thing and I'd be out in the parking lot grinding curbs and, 
my dad would be saying, you know, put your skateboard away. You're going to break your leg and ruin your hockey career. <laughs> but uh, little did he know where the skateboard was going to take me. Um, but hockey, hockey and uh, skateboarding were, were definitely uh, both uh, part of my life. Hockey being, being a little bit more important for a while, but skateboarding definitely being right, right there with it as far as what my priorities were um, and what I really enjoyed. Okay. So when did the transition kind of happen for you from like hockey was like the thing that was pulling you forward in your heart? That was it. Like hockey was it for you? Like, did you think that you were going to the NHL? Like other people thought you were, was that something that was that you aspired to do? I think I did for a long time. You know, I, I um, got to play with some guys who, who, who ended up going to the NHL and, and it was cool to see them, how successful they were. That last year at juniors, my body was getting pretty beat up. You know, when you stand in front of 90 mile an hour slap shots for a number of years and you're, you're training all the time, uh, my knees were taking a beating, my hips were taking a little bit of a beating. And I really, that last year, I fell out of love for the game of hockey. I, 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 I guess that's not the right way to put it, but my passion shifted. I still love the game. I love watching teams play. I love, I still play. I'll still get out on the ice, but I, it wasn't that driving force. And I don't know what shifted, what changed that could have been just the monotony of it, that it wasn't fun going to the ice rink anymore. And I've always said when it's not fun, I'll quit. I say that about skateboarding when skateboarding isn't fun for me anymore. I'll quit doing it. But I think that year and still skateboarding was just something I did. It, it Skateboarding brings so much more than just a useless wooden toy into people's lives. It brings music and it brings a different kind of culture and a different kind of creativity. And it's a lifestyle more than just an activity. And so I, I had all these cool friends that I was hanging out with and I was going to college at Wayne State University in downtown Detroit. And it, it was, I just figured I'm going to school. I'm an artist. I'm drawing, I'm, I'm meeting new people. I'm experiencing life. I really didn't have an expectation or a, you know, a hierarchy of needs of what was, what was important and what wasn't. I was sort of just going with the flow and going where my heart took me. And at that time it was focusing on college um, I just started playing the drums when I was uh, 18. So I was learning how to play the drums in, in, uh, in, 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 in the times that I wasn't outside doing something. And so it was just a natural progression, I think. There wasn't this definitive decision or anything like that. Oh, I love that. And I love how you bring up like the culture because, you know, from somebody looking from the outside in that don't get it, like when I race motocross, like, I can't even explain to people what that culture is in that when you, you know, every weekend you're at the track, you're camping, you're like the music, the, the sound of the engine, the energy, like all of it, like what it does and how it kind of influences who you are and like the community and culture in it, like you can't replicate that. Or, or like even explain in words until you've experienced it. So I feel like that also, you know, in skateboarding, people who just don't get it and look at like, oh, look at, there's some punks at the skate park or, you know, here's some guy whipping by when really that to them 
fuels them up and has that feeling. And when they have, like you said, the music and the connections and the community around it, it's not just a wooden toy. It's like a way of life. So I love how you um, bring that to light because whatever it is for you, whatever you find that like sparks that inside of you um, is so fulfilling. So you, that was always like something that just rode along with you, your skateboard, you took it everywhere you went when you were in college. Um, like when did you kind of figure out that skateboarding could be like a job or a lifestyle? Um, it was, it was again, like an evolutionary kind of thing, you know, in the, uh, early nineties skateboarding, there wasn't skateboard parks everywhere. Um, you had to like, you'd hear about a ramp or hear about somebody, some structure that somebody had in their backyard and you'd drive out there and sort of peek over the fence. And maybe if there was a car in the driveway, you might knock on the door, like random person knocking on the door. Hey, is, uh, whoever owns that ramp home, you know, like you don't know, but it was such a, a small group that when you saw somebody wearing a pair of Vans tennis shoes, or maybe if they had a, a t-shirt on with a punk rock band, you knew they searched that out. You couldn't just bu go buy it on the corner. And so it was like an instant connection, you know, and, and instantly you started sharing stories. What do you have in your city? What do you have in your city? Where you've been riding? And you had this instant friend. And so it was really cool to meet people like that when I started going to Wayne State. And so I was open to a whole nother side of, of uh, suburban Detroit. You know, a, a bunch of my friends are from the east side. And so they had little ramps there. And so I started branching out and skateboarding just kept opening these doors as far as uh, just creativity and camaraderie and, and all everything that goes with it. And so about 1996, uh, Vans Shoe Company started what's called the Warp Tour. And that was initially an amateur contest series that was going to go to every state and have a street contest and a ramp contest. Whoever won in each state would get a plane ticket to California and you flew to California and it was the best amateur skateboarder in the world contest. And every time I see Mr. Van Doren, I thank him. And uh, Steve Van Doren is the owner of Vans and I get to see him a couple times a year. And he's like, yeah, whatever, Gerald, I know you're gonna thank me again because I think um, that Vans Warp Tour gave me the opportunity to get some national exposure coming out of the Midwest. And that was really what fueled that, that push into the professional skateboard world. I ended up winning here in Detroit in 1997 and 1998. I won the contest here. And the first year in 97, I went out West for the finals and I was like a deer in headlights. I had never been around something like that. You know, it was this huge contest in a mall and, it was just totally foreign to me. I was nervous. I'm standing there and there's the guys I see in magazines just hanging out. And it was a great experience, but I was totally like a fish out of water. Didn't know what to do. Well, the next year, 1998, I was a little more prepared and I did very well. I didn't win, but I done, did very well. And by the time I got home, I had already... Um, gained a little notoriety in the Midwest. And so I had uh, a few sponsors helping me out. And by the time I uh, got home back here into 
Metro Detroit, uh, a phone call came and they said, Gerald, you know, I think you're doing well enough. You've been kicking butt the last couple of years. And I get emotional, sorry. But they said, you know, we'd like to turn you pro. And I'm like, at the time, I'm just like, all right, whatever, click. You know, I didn't realize the magnitude of it, you know, because I was just in the mix. And um, and it ended up turning out, I called a wonderful friend of mine, uh, Bill Danforth, who is a, a legendary professional skateboarder from Detroit. And I said, I'm not sure what's going on here, Bill, but um, the board company wants to put, make one with my name on it. Will you go with me to this meeting? And he did. And we ended up getting to travel the country together and do demos and boards came out. And it was it was really surreal uh, from where I came, you know, coming out of the uh, a little, you know, uh, low income housing <laughs> area in uh, uh, south of Detroit to be able to travel around the country and and put on shows and meet people and have experiences. It's just I I, I couldn't have written a better uh, a better script it, it's truly been a blessing and and a, a great great uh, evolution for me to be able to step through these things and then and then what we're doing now is just again it just seems like what a nat natural evolution um there's a wonderful book called the surrender experiment and in that book the gentleman who wrote it he just decided to surrender whatever was to surrender to whatever was presented to him so even if he didn't want to do it if if his whatever your higher power is my heart whatever was put on his plate he couldn't say no and the story is phenomenal and he would just do it and i feel like i've been sort of living that way um on a, on a little bit of a smaller scale i still have my personal opinions on things but um uh the my life has sort of been that way. Different doors open up and I'm like, yeah, let's give it a shot. <laughs> let's see what happens, you know? Oh, I know that just gave me like full body chills, like getting that call. Um, your name's going to be on the skateboard, that opportunity opened up for you. It kind of sounds like things um, just you kept following the breadcrumbs, kept doing what felt good, kept things kept evolving, evolving naturally. Were there any, uh, like any major speed bumps along the way that you can think of, or did it just kind of flow for you? Um, it flowed pretty good. There were some life hurdles in there, you know, uh, my mom and dad in this period decided that they didn't want to be together anymore. So, you know, my mom and I, uh, threw in together and rented a house and, and, had to do what we had to, to get by. And, um, you know, my grandma who was very influential in my life at that time was going through a tough time, but it worked out because my mom could move to her house and take care of her while I was traveling and doing what I was doing and, and taking care of her when I was back in town, I'd, I'd help out around there. So there was other life hurdles that were happening, but with skateboarding, you know, it was, it was pretty seamless, um, to a point, you know, at the end of that, that first year, of being pro, um, I had set some expectations pretty high and they weren't being met. And I was, I was like, what am I doing wrong? You know, questioning myself and, and do I just go get a job and just, you know, excel at that? Or do I keep pushing this, this skateboarding thing? And, um, and I, I kept on doing what I was doing, you know, at about a year and a half, two years, 
I I had almost decided I was going to quit skateboarding because it seemed like every time I stepped out my door, uh, I had to perform. I had to, there was an expectation from people that if I showed up to a skateboard park or, or I couldn't just casually just, you know, dork around for two hours. They expected to see like a show if I was there. I had to put on a show and that was getting old and I was taking it very seriously. And I was like, you know, this is like a job and this isn't why I ride a skateboard, not for a job. I ride it because I love to do it. And I almost, I thought about it for a little while, like stepping away from the, at least the public professional part of it, but I chose not to. And, um, and it just, it, it ended up being an, an amazing journey. You know, I, I left my first board sponsor. I left pretty early and, um, and started, you know, other companies were giving me boards and whatnot. And when I decided to, uh, really come back to Michigan full time and, and be here. Cause I had been traveling. I lived in Oceanside for a little while. I lived in Santa Barbara for a little while. I stayed in Chattanooga for a little while. And I decided to come back to Michigan and, um, and start, uh, start a board company out of, out of Michigan. And I wasn't sure how we were going to do it. I, I just thought, you know, I don't really like the way they're doing the things in California. Let's start a board company here in Michigan. And so that was when I first started a little bit of the entrepreneurship that went along with, uh, with my passion and started a board company and, and it, it worked for a while and then ended up starting another board company in 2008 uh, called Purple Heart and Purple Heart in, evolved into a predominantly clothing company that's all about overcoming obstacles. You see this big heart behind me here and it just continues to grow with encouraging people uh, to uh, just embrace the power they have and, and recognize the obstacles they have overcome to make it this far. That's what this logo embodies. And it's continued, you know, we're now, uh, what, 14 years later, and Purple Heart is still um, just more, I don't know, I don't think still is the right word, Purple Heart continues to grow from a grassroots level and, and see more people wearing the Heart and Bones logo is just rad. So, um, you know, with the, the popularity that I was lucky and fortunate to gain riding a skateboard, the doors that it opened following my competitive career uh, have, have definitely just, I mean, it's like, shoot for the moon man it, it's been it's been truly amazing and that i think is the best one of the best gifts that skateboarding has given me but i think the the single raddest gift that skateboarding um has brought into my life is the people you talked about it uh, the camaraderie the people you get to meet uh, every different walk of life just just out there doing it and even now in Detroit, we have so many public skate parks coming up that more and more uh, older folks, you know, and I say older being over the age of 30, are picking up a skateboard again because their son or daughter is skating. And you could go out to the parks anytime when it's warm out and you'll see a father and son, a mother and son, a mother and daughter, a father and daughter rolling around together. And it's so rad to see that happening and to be able to get out there myself 
and roll around and just smile. And it still does for me what it did when I was 11. I still smile like a child and people like, like you have a lot of fun riding your skateboard. And I say, yes, I do. I really do. And when it's not fun, I'll quit. Like I said. Oh, I love that. Okay. A couple things. So first you say like you kind of went around, you traveled a lot, went around the world with skateboarding and it's about like the connections that you met, the people that you met doing something that you love that have opened doors for you now and will continue to. So where are some of the, the places that when you think about traveling and the connections that you made, what were some of the ones who were like the ones that were so profound in your life or that, you know, it could be something, the tiniest thing, or maybe it was like a massive opportunity. What have some of those look like? And what were the, some, some of the places that you've been? I'd have to say the first one that pops into my head is I rode for a company called Ninja Bearings. And the team manager was a gentleman named Mike Sorge. And he, at that time in my life, when I, when I got on the team and I started being a little bit more uh, involved, I started drawing something. When he realized I could draw, I started doing some of the graphics for the other guys on the team and stuff like that. And we developed a wonderful friendship. But some of the life lessons that he taught me, he was just a, a great human being. And I couldn't, couldn't ask for a better uh, influential figure in my life at that time. And, and things like that happened so many different times. Sorge coming in when he did, taught me awesome life lessons. Then uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. I, I will give you the craziest story about this one. Um, and this story is gonna blow your mind. I swear to you it will. So I get a phone call from some lady in Chattanooga and she says, um, or no, Mike Sorge gave me a phone number. And he said, this lady would like to have you come down and do a demo and make an appearance and whatever. So I call the number and I, I call and lady answers, Flamingo Skate Shop. And I say, hey, this is Gerald Valley. I got your number from Mike Sorge. You wanted me to give you a call. And she said, I don't know who you are. It was the wrong number, by the way. She's like, I don't know who you are, but um, we'd love to have you down. We're having a contest in a couple months, you know? And I said, well, I do some contest announcing. So we set up a trip to Chattanooga. I call Mike back, get the right number and call another lady. She was from Dalton, Georgia. So I call her. She had just bought the skate shop. They had one of my boards nailed to the wall. The gentleman who she bought it from said, you have to get this guy down here. He's a great skater, great for the community. Get him down here. So I go down to Dalton, Georgia. Blows my mind. They treat me like Tony Hawk, give me a place up on the mountain, you know, and I, I start skating first, quit skating last. I tell them I'll sweep the parking lot, do whatever you want. You know, I'm here for you. And uh, it was a just, I got home from that trip and I was like, that'll never happen again. That was freaking amazing. I mean, they, they treated me like I was the man and it was really cool. I'm wow. Wow. So a month later, I'm going to Chattanooga, go down to Chattanooga, do the same kind of thing. They have a room in their house for me, like with like a little candy dish and a new Thrasher magazine and stuff. It was really cool. And I announced the contest for them, put on some demos. Within three days, I was leaving and um, affectionately known as Mama Mingo. Her name is Janice Nyman. She gives me a hug and she says, I feel like my, my son is leaving right now. There was a crazy connection there. 
Well, when I decided to make my TV show, I had called her and I said, I think I'm going to make a motivational TV show. I'd like to have you guys in it. And she said, of course. And we would like to invest in your TV show. That was the wrong number. Let's not forget. That was the wrong number I got. And we're still friends to this day. I ended up working with them for a very long time. Just a connection was made and, um, and, and different things happened for the path that I was uh, really starting to embark upon at that time, which is motivation and helping people realize the power they have in their lives. But it was a random wrong number that caused a lot of that to happen. So that's one definitely that stands out. And then, I mean, living out in Southern California, um, I, just, I, I got to meet some of the most wonderful people. I realized how resourceful I can be because there was sometimes when I didn't have any place to go and I was sleeping on benches and and uh, sleeping on the beach and and figuring out what I was going to do to to get to the next point. Um, and then, I mean, you know, 1999, 2000, 2001, cell phones and those kind of things weren't weren't at the commonplace. So when I was, you know, out there and didn't have anybody to call or nobody to nobody to no place to go. You know, I slept the one time in San Francisco, I slept in the Amtrak bus station because I had everything I own on me. And the guard said if I would buy a ticket to my next destination, he would keep an eye on me. And so I slept in the bus station because I had, like I said, two skateboards, all my clothes, money in my pockets. And he said he would keep an eye on me uh, as long as I had a ticket for the next place. So, you know, those different kinds of things help us realize as people how resilient we really can be and how resourceful we can become when we have to. Wow. That is just incredible. Like all of that. Just <laughs> wow. Um, I have a couple things. There was one thing I wanted to kind of just quickly touch on, um, like as a mom and I have a little guy, he's seven and like we have a couple little skate parks in town. And we like to go when we're down in the park and go watch, but it is so intimidating. Um, like just to be there, like, we're like, oh my gosh, this five is amazing. Um, just like to sit and watch it all. So like for someone like me, who's like, oh, that, that could be cool. Like maybe th try a skateboard or bring them down. Um, like for him, how do you get over that? Or how do you like enter um the skate park because i feel like oh gosh everybody there is gonna be like well what the hell are they doing here like they're getting in my way they're terrible like how do you get over that or how do you enter the um i don't even know if part of the community but just like do it you know does that make sense you know, oh it totally does and and first and foremost i'd say safety equipment that's very important uh but one of the greatest things about the extreme sports world is everybody is welcome. Everybody is welcome. Boy, girl, green, white, blue, purple, pink, freaking doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who, who shows up there welcomed. And when a new, um, you know, a young seven-year-old comes to the park, nine times out of ten, when, when somebody in the park realizes that he is a, a brand new to the game, that you're like 
like you are right now. I don't even know the first thing, what to do. Oftentimes, uh, somebody from the park will come walking up and say, I'll give them a hand. I'll, I'll help them out. And, um, and, and that is, it, you'll see it all over the country. About two years ago, here in Detroit, uh, a gentleman from New York brought a mini ramp in and it was like a work of art. And he put it in one of the epic skyscrapers in downtown Detroit, right in the main lobby. This, this building was built in like the 1920s. The architecture, phenomenal. And they put a, a small half pipe in this lobby. And when I talked to him and I said, why are you doing it? Why did you do, what are you doing? He was in the same position you are. He took his daughter to a skateboard park in New York. And he realized anytime she fell down, somebody was there to help her up. Somebody was there to give her tips, to give her a hand on how to be successful. Because every single person in that park has been in her shoes, had been in her shoes at one time or another. And they were so helpful and so supportive that he decided, I'm going to build a ramp and take it from major city to major city. Because if we can get some of that kind of mindset into our day-to-day -day culture, it is a game changer. Why can't we help each other out? Why can't we be supportive of each other on a daily basis? And that's what you get the majority of the time at public skate parks around the country, actually around the world. So supportive. Um, there is a, a, a I, I guess you would call it, I don't even know what you would call it. It's not really a trick, but I guess sort of. But when, when somebody is skating a ramp or a pool, when they set their board up and, and lean forward and roll in, it's called dropping in. And when you learn that, it's like a baby learning to walk. And I have seen it time and time again, anybody from five to 50, when they make and land and roll away from their first drop in, everybody that sees it cheers, gets goosebumps, might even get choked up like I do because it is so huge. And everybody cheering knows what that person, the fear that person just went through, the dedication that person just went through to learn that just to drop in. And it's like starting to walk. And that's the support you get from the skateboard community. You get it from the BMX community, even the scooter community and anybody on wheels in a skateboard park, you get that kind of support. So I urge you, you know, to take that, that opportunity to give your little guy a chance and somebody at that park is going to step up and lend a hand. Oh, okay. I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to do it when the snow melts around here, we're going to get a skateboard and head to the park. Cool. And, yeah. See what happens. Um, you did mention something um, just a minute ago about how you kind of got into like the motivation, inspiring others. What led you there? You're really fired up and passionate about, um, leading others, inspiring others. How did you get there? I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. You know, I got 2007 was my last year competing. And, and most of the people in the community had already known me as a pretty upbeat, positive kind of person. And um, yeah, 2007 uh, was the last year I was competed anywhere. I was in the X Games that year. Um, a few other contests 
And I just didn't want to keep up anymore. I'm like, I don't want to have to try to keep up. I want to still skateboard and still, you know, do what I do, but I just don't want to compete. And I'm like, what do I do next? What, what do I do next? And at the time, the, the jackass shows were super popular. Bam Margera and all those guys were everywhere pulling shenanigans. It was hilarious. It was funny, but that's what was being, um, or I'm sorry, that's what, most skateboarders were being looked at as, you know, because it was so popular. Anybody who had a skateboard, they're like prankster, jokester, this, that. So I decided I want to make a TV show. And I found a way to do it. Uh, and I think that was the stepping stone to really starting to carry a positive message, starting to, uh, I wanted to get on stages and I wanted to talk to middle schools and high schools and, and, and let them know Everybody here is capable of doing everything I've done and more, you know, coming from the background that I have to get to where I'm at. Some people go, that's amazing. You know, I could never do that. And so I wanted to urge people. Yes, you can. I don't care where you're from, what you were born with, what you were born without. You can do whatever you set your mind to. And that really that TV show, I, I, um, I it only we only made one. And it was a one hour pilot and it ran all over the Midwest and, and it was a cool show. And I can get into how that even happened because it was just being resourceful. I'm really the epitome of the DIY kind of, you know, do it yourself. If I want to do something and anybody who's watching this, if you want to do something and you say, I want to write a book, but I don't have a publisher, write the damn book, write the book. And self-publish, you know, just do it, get it done. And that's how I did the TV show. I just, I was like, hmm, I don't know anything about a TV show. Uh, how do I make a TV show? I got to write a treatment. Okay, I'm going to write a treatment and pay 20 bucks. And I'm going to register this treatment. And then I called a friend who is uh, a, a, a guy I call when I have big decisions to make. And I say, hey, hey, George, I, I want to make a TV show. You know anybody who can help me? he's like, what, Gerald? Um, yeah, I'm going to make a TV show, man. Let's let's figure it out here. And he put me in contact with a gentleman named Kurt Luttermoser. We met at a place down in Columbus, Ohio, with a gentleman named Dave Winham. And they saw my vision. They wanted to be part of it. And within one year, we had a show called Underground Valley. And I was telling positive background stories of some famous people and some not so famous people. Of, of what they'd done with their lives. And it was just cool. You know, I, um, I had the family from Chattanooga on because the young man started that skateboard shop with borrowing a hundred bucks from his grandma and open up a little booth in a flea market. And that's how he started that skateboard shop, which ended up growing to be the largest skateboard shop within a 200 mile radius of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And that story is really cool. You know, you don't need a million bucks to start along your path to your dream. And I also had um, a gentleman named Buster Douglas. And a lot of people don't know who that is. But Mike Tyson, uh, Mike Tyson boxing legend was at the top of his game. And he was going to fight a warm up fight in China. Nobody even watched it. It aired at 2 a.m. Well, he was fighting a guy named Buster Douglas. Nobody, a real, nobody even knew. He wasn't even on the radar of being a contender. And he knocked Mike Tyson out. And that was the beginning of the end for Mike Tyson. 
Well, Buster Douglas, that was, I'm not sure the exact year, but probably early 90s. Well, in 2007, when we made the TV show, Buster Douglas uh, hadn't blown all that money. And he was building affordable housing around the gym he used to train in in Columbus, Ohio. And I thought that was a wonderful story. Buster came on the show. And so the one hour show had five different stories like that. I talked about my grandpa, how cool he is. I talked about, like I said, Buster talked about the family in Chattanooga, Bill Danforth, Garrett Morris, an original Saturday Night Live cast member was on the show and we did it. Uh, and it was awesome, but it was just having that passion, that drive. And now, I mean, at the click of a mouse, you can sort of find a, a roadmap to do whatever you want to do and you can do it on a budget no matter what it is. And I, I'm sitting here living proof. I mean, uh, many of, uh, of the young entrepreneurs and people who have, have, have really started to walk their own path, they figure it out. It's never a lack of resources. It's always a lack of resourcefulness. Oh, absolutely. Um, is that episode still available to watch like somewhere out there online? Well, it's funny because we're getting ready to put the full show on my website because it has never been on YouTube. It's never been anywhere. And within the next month, you'll be able to go to the Stoke is Real and watch uh, different segments from that TV show. Wow. Okay. Let me know when that is up and on the site because I'm absolutely watching that. And I love how you say that. It is um, the resources are there. It's your resourcefulness. Like absolutely anything is possible. I like believe that to my core. And I know sometimes that, maybe rubs people the wrong way. Because if you need like a cheer girl, if you need um, that person backing you up, like I am her because I believe pigs can fly. There's a man on the moon. There's the internet. Like anything that I want is absolutely possible. You just have to figure it out. And it, yeah, it can be hard at times, but you just have to keep going and like little steps at a time. Just like that story you said of that guy who used a hundred dollars to start at a flea market look where it leads you. So if you're passionate about something, um, that will keep driving you forward, uh, because you will take the little steps and it, it will take time and things, all the connections and the little seeds that are being planted. Eventually the the flowers grow like stuff will. And, and it's about, I think also enjoying the journey along the way. So, so cool how you've enjoyed this journey along the way. Um, okay. You said, if you want to write a book, so you have written a book and you have another one, um, in the process of publishing. So, um, tell us about your, that journey, your books. Well, it was, uh, 2012 and, you know, we did the TV show and I'd, um, through uh, my relationships with the TV show, we also started an organization called the Adrenaline Games Alliance which was um, uh, we were uh, trying to create an amateur contest series for extreme sports athletes here in the Midwest. So they didn't have to go out and sleep in, on uh, uh, benches and on the beach like I did. They could stay home. It could be nationally recognized. And if they wanted to take it to the professional level, they could do that here instead of mortgaging the farm and going to the West Coast. So with that, I bring that up because we started to do community outreach for that. 
And the gentleman who I was working with, Kurt, was like, well, we, we need to go to schools. And that's when I started speaking at schools. I started getting on stage, telling a little bit about my story, how I got to where we got to. And I, I loved it. I loved interacting with the kids. I would stay and eat lunch with them. I would just I would stay all night long if they wanted to ask questions. It didn't matter to me. It was just rad to see the the eyes light up and the light bulb. And like, I, I want to be like that guy, you know, and, and let them know that they have that possibility and it's all within them. Um, that was going on through what, 2007 to about 2011 or so. Uh, and then, then I was like, what do I got to do now? What's, what's next? I, I need to write a book, man. I'm going to write a book. Let's figure out how to write a book. And I'm, I'm a graphic illustrator. I'm not necessarily a, a guru when it comes to the English language. And so I started picking the brains of some of my punk rock friends and found some friends on the West coast to, uh, my buddy Stan, his his wife was a teacher and she was going to help with the writing and whatnot. And so I ended up writing a book called Voluntary Self-Achievement. And it was geared towards 16 to 20 year olds about personal accountability, about starting to take responsibility for themselves. So each chapter had a story from my life that could resonate with them. At the end of each chapter, there was like little worksheets and different things they could do to really start to develop and realize the power that they have been so blessed with. That was the first book and it did well. It did well, it was self-published, I did it all. And as I would go and speak at middle schools and high schools, I would donate one to the library, give some away, some were being sold. It was, it was a, a really cool learning experience and I really enjoyed it. Um, since that time in 2012, several people have come up to me and they're like, your book is super good. And these are, you know, 30, 40 year olds. They're like that, that, that resonated with me. It'd be rad to write almost an adult version of that book. And I've been planning on doing it for a while. And, um, that's what happened a few months ago. I decided I was just gonna, uh, let's get it done. And I made a deal with myself that I would sit down and write a thousand words a day. Uh, it's like eating a whale one bite at a time. You know, when you go, I'm going to write a book, uh, I want it to be, you know, 200 pages. Then you go on the internet and you go, okay, how big is 200 pages? And it says, you know, 35, 40,000 words. And you just think it's this insurmountable. I can't write that many words. But if you sit down and say, I'm going to write 500 words a day, I'm going to write a thousand words a day. And so I did that. I decided I'm going to sit down and write these words, started doing it. And within a month and a half, the book is the skeleton of the book is written. Friend of mine is editing it, telling me where to add stuff, take stuff away. And um, and all that's left, I got seven chapters. Chapters are short. They're only 3,000 words a chapter. It's not a big book. I just wanted, uh, wanted to write a little bit of something where you could have it, you know, in your dash or in your purse, a little book that you could pick up and read for 10 minutes and get something out of it that resonates with you. Uh, and so that's how the second book is getting done. And it's so, it's so fresh that, uh, we still have four working titles. We haven't even decided on a title yet. Um, but it's, it's just a rad little book and, uh, anybody can do, I'm, I'm I, seriously, anybody can do it, especially with how easy the internet is making self-publishing. Um, actually I'll break it down super quick for you. You write a manuscript at I think it's still $35. You pay $35 and you get a barcode, which is your ISBN number. And 
you have a book. You can go print it at Staples if you want or find a company online to print it for you. And the coolest, one of the coolest things about that first book is, is one of the, when you get the ISBN number, the one thing you have to do is you have to, when you have a hard copy, you get to send it to the Library of Congress. So I have a book in the Library of Congress and I thought that was the coolest thing, but it really doesn't cost that much. I mean, I think it's even free to put it on Amazon. So you can write a book, print one hard copy to send to the Library of Congress and the rest could be digital and you could put it up on Amazon and have your own book and all, all that kind of good stuff. So once you once people start realizing or hearing from somebody like me or like you, here are the steps you can take to do it. It becomes a, a real vision for them. It doesn't seem like this huge insurmountable mountain they realize they can take these little incremental steps and next thing you know, they're an author or they're an inventor or they're an entrepreneur. It, it, it works for everything. Oh, I love how you break it down like that. How cool. And I cannot wait to find out what this next book, what the title is and get my hands on it and yeah, do the work in there. Um, okay. So I have a few final questions for you before we kind of wrap up today. Um, so I guess maybe... It, it might be the book or maybe something else, but what is a big goal or dream that you're currently working towards? Well, I'm going to give you another, another scenario that just happened even since we booked this, since we booked this Candace, um, you know, I hosted a, I, I started a podcast. Yeah. I'll tell you that story. Um, in 2010, I was told like my hips are screwed and I can't walk. And I was having a hard time walking. So I know I love adrenaline. I know I love what I do. And I decided I was going to start a podcast. This is 2010. And so I started a podcast from my couch. Here's another example of resourcefulness. Found blogtalkradio.com. And it would cost me like 20 bucks a month. No, it was free. I could get an hour free. And I would call my friends on the phone. And they would call in. Or I would call in this number. They would call into that number. And we would talk on the phone. And it was a podcast. And I put out a podcast. Well, that actually did very well. It was called Underground Valley, named after the TV show. And it did well. Well, a few years ago, I uh, it, it back up a little bit. That show I did from 2010 to actually I did fragments of it all the way up to 2018. Well, TEDx was coming through Detroit. I want to speak at TEDx. So I volunteered to, to work it, to see it, to meet people. And I ended up meeting uh, two fine gentlemen who uh, were asked, looking for podcast hosts. It was a company called New Radio Media and um, took their card. I gave them my card. And the story is funny because this lady wouldn't stop calling my card. And I kept hanging up saying she just wants money. And um, long story short, I ended up hosting a podcast for New Radio Media for two years. You can find it at... Uh, uh, nrmstreamcast.com uh, and I think slash Gerald Valley. There's 88 shows on there. It's awesome, fun stuff, all inspirational, everything from dog trainers to spiritual gurus to professional athletes, stuntmen. It's, it's a rad show. But um, I did that show all the way up until COVID hit. And then the studio, you know, I had to step back a little bit. Well, in this last week, um, I reached out to a friend from that studio who's working in another location. And he was like, man, G money, it would be awesome 
to have you down here. And this is a legendary sports figure here in Detroit. And so I'm still like a child. So I'm like, I can't believe he just called me G money. Like I'm still like 12. And, uh, and so ended up sitting down with a meeting on Wednesday and it looks like, uh, the drop in with Gerald Valley is going to have a new home at the Woodward sports network. And, um, and it's just, again, meeting people, uh, having that connection with people, you know, Tom, Tom Mazaway and I, that's who called me. We would have never met before, but we were doing a show in the same building. We hung out, we talked, he got the energy. I got his energy. We became friends. And when I walked in the studio, four times Stanley cup champ, Darren McCarty was sitting there and he's like, Gerald. And he's like, this is the guy that's going to put our network over the top, man. This is the guy. And I'm like, those connections are incredible. And it, it all just happened to work out. And so uh, I'm super excited to get back in the studio and start bringing some more positive content. So having the drop in back, that's probably that and my, my the new book are just uh, it, it's it's like a fairy tale, man. I got to pinch myself sometimes. And and, and it, it's it, it's cool. But, you know, it does take a little bit of work. But the the payoff and the feeling inside the personal gratification of knowing that that you put in the hours, you put in the work, you you create the relationships and they're sincere. People see that they they see that sincerity and that passion. And um, and for me, it's with no expectation out the other side. You know, it's I, I don't expect anything from anybody. And when it happens, I, I get choked up because I don't expect that. Um, but um, it's 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 a it's a wonderful feeling, and and even being here on the air with you, you know, you get you, you talk to Jacob, he connects us. Now we have a connection. I'm sure we're gonna talk again. I'm already like, well, I'll send Candace the manuscript before the book even comes out, and get her get her uh, get her I uh, opinion of, of what it is, and I will as soon as I have it done editing. I want to send it to you and get your opinion before it even gets printed, and see what you think, and maybe. Um, you know, who knows? We may end up doing work in the future. You know, that's how I met Jacob. A friend of ours connected us. We talked one time. A couple of years later, we're doing things. And so uh, I'm very fortunate um, to have the opportunities, but I don't take them for granted. And and gratitude is, is I think, one of the most important things. So uh, twice a day, once in the morning and once at night, I take three minutes just to remember everything I'm grateful for from the sheets on my bed to the people in my life. And, um, and so just remember that, you know, anybody watching, if you take one thing away from this show, uh, gratitude changes everything. Even when you're having a rough day and, and you sit back for a minute and think about what you're thankful for, it takes, it takes a lot of that roughness away. It smooths it out a little bit when you realize all the, all the wonderful things you have in your life. Oh, that just so speaks to me. I have just want to grab it here. I have, I have multiple of these. Like, I feel like gratitude is my superpower. I have yes. years worth of gratitude in every day, what I'm grateful for. And I think the missing piece is self-love like loving yourself. So oh, my, book for- will, my, my, my book will speak to you because there's a whole chapter on building self-worth and it talks about my journey of how I got there. It only took me 42 years, 42 years. And I'll save, save that story for another show because I could fill up a whole hour with just that story. But um, yeah, self-love, self-worth, 
all that in in and uh yeah i got a chapter just for you oh i can't wait to get that manuscript and yes like you said gratitude will absolutely change your life it's changed my life and i just uh the, just the gratitude piece so i just love that you brought that up um Okay. So your website URL, I think that's what it's called, uh, is the stoke is real. Can you give us a rundown? What does that mean to you? Uh, well, I've been in the, in the skateboard world, uh, the word stoke means like super excited, super fired up. Like it, it just, it, 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 it gets your blood pumping. And, um, and I say it a lot and I say, Oh man, I'm so stoked to meet you. I, I'm blah, 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 whatever. I, I use it in my everyday vocabulary and when I say the stoke is real, uh, when I when I get excited, when I get fired up, when I'm helping other people, uh, this isn't fake. Like this is me every day. This is real, and and the stoke of life is real. We just have to take the time, take a moment to to recognize it and look around. This is real. The life you create is real. The the passion and, and the drive it's, it's all, it comes, it's sincere. And so when, when, um, you know, people go to the website and they'll look on there and you can, there's a link to the book and a link to, a um, my latest, the 20th anniversary skateboard that came out in September. And there's some, uh, links to different videos in my social media feeds and stuff like that. That's all legit. That's not BS. That's not just to get more followers. That's who I am from the day I wake, the minute I wake up to the end of the night. And so we decided, uh, you know, GeraldValley.com was out there. And if you if, actually, if you plug in GeraldValley.com, it will take you to the Stoke is real now. But uh, I just I wanted to finally have one website that I'll have for the rest of my life. And I said, you know, the Stoke is real is never going away. Um, the graphic is pretty cool on there. It's a little guy meditating and there's fire coming out of one hand and sort of smoke coming out of the other hand. And, um, and it's just, it, it is when you find what you're passionate about, when you start living life, genuine and sincere, the stoke is real and it can be real in your life. Oh, I love that. Absolutely. Okay. So my final question is what advice would you give someone who has the extraordinary goal that seems impossible, just a little bit out of reach. How, what would you, what advice would you give to them? Um, you know, Tony Robbins says, you know, chunking things. And that's sort of what I was hinting at a little bit earlier when I started to do the TV show, making a TV show is sort of appears insurmountable, but or any, anything you want to do. If you want to make a million bucks, if you want to, uh, you know, when you, when you chunk it, you put it into little, little, um, segments, you say, okay, the first step I need to do, you know, let's say somebody wants to learn how to play guitar, you know, uh, their, their, their fingers don't even work right. They can, they have a hard time, you know, just typing. And they're like, I want to, I want to play guitar. It's something I want to do. I know I need to do this. Um, I have to do this. How do I play guitar? Cause I can't even type my name. Well, you know, think about the first step, find somebody, you know, who might play guitar. If you don't know anybody, maybe you go to the local music store and talk to somebody there and say, I, I'm thinking about learning how to play guitar. I can't even type my name. And, and, and you just take little baby steps. You say, okay. He says, maybe get a ukulele. There's only three strings on it. 
you know, so maybe you start playing on the ukulele. Well, when you, when you take, set these little goals, each time you achieve those, you have to take the time to celebrate just a little bit, celebrate a little bit because you did something you thought you couldn't do a month ago. You're playing a ukulele and a month ago, you're saying, I can't do this. Well, then the ukulele starts and, and you're like, okay, I'm going to learn tiptoe through the tulips by tiny Tim. It's a ukulele song and it might take two months or it might take three months, but you're putting in the work. And once that you tiptoe through the tulips and you're like, oh my word, I'm playing it. Like you almost amaze yourself. Well, that's another little step. Maybe you love Mexican food. Go to your favorite Mexican restaurants, celebrate. Cause we don't take the time when we set this big goals and I'm guilty of it. Uh, we, we got our eye on this prize. We don't celebrate those little successes as we're getting there. And we have to do that because that will help us keep momentum. And that will help us realize, okay, I'm one step closer to that goal. And so many times in my life, I never reached the goal. I never got there. But that journey, that, that, some people would call it failure. I don't like using that word particularly because what I gained in that process, in that journey, I maybe didn't get to uh, the NHL, but what I learned in my hockey career are nobody can ever take that away from me. And it has helped shape me for the rest of my life. So I never got to that big goal, but, but the, the lessons that were learned were probably more important than getting to that goal. And so I'd say, just put it in, in, in the little chunks, you know, you want to make a million bucks. I saw somebody do this the other day and it was so awesome. They're like, I want to make, you know, $10 million. They had some ludicrous number. And what they did was break it down to how much they would have to make a week, a month. Uh, 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 and it went all the way down to like the hour. And then it seemed so manageable. They were like, okay, I got to make X amount of dollars an hour. And it seemed manageable because they, I can never make a million bucks. But they're like, okay, I got to make, you know, hundred and whatever it was, 125 bucks a day. And then you're like, oh, I can start a little t-shirt business that maybe I make five bucks a shirt. So I got to sell 35 shirts a day. There's 125 bucks a day. I just have to do that. And, and when you, when you start breaking it down, makes almost everything attainable. Well, let's leave it at that. Yes, absolutely. Anything is possible. I have been so stoked through this whole conversation this whole time. I've just absolutely loved talking with you. Um, so lastly, where can everybody find you at what you've got going on? Stay connected for when this book is going to launch, get your previous book for their children. Where can we find all of this stuff? Well, um, first, I want to say thank you very much, Candice, for, for letting me come on and talk with you. I'm sure we're going to do it more, uh, either having you on my new show coming up, coming back on your show. Who knows what the future holds? But anybody watching, you can go to thestokeisreal.com. Um, you can also, uh, through Facebook and Instagram, it's Gerald Valley, G-A-R-O-L-D, V as in Victor, A-L-L-I-E. And I try to answer almost every message I get. I don't always get to them, but um, all you're going to get on my social media is positivity, skateboarding. Occasionally, there's some music stuff on there, but for the most part, you're going to get inspiration and positivity. There's 
never, never. I can honestly say that I don't use the word never much, but there is never any negativity on my uh, social feeds. So those are the places you can uh, check out more and uh, reach out to me if you'd like. Okay. Thanks again. I have loved every minute of our conversation and can't wait to continue to connect with you. All right. Thanks, Candace. Talk to you very soon. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of All Things Relatable. If you know someone that would relate to this episode and get value from it, please pass it along. Also, if this episode resonated with you, I would love for you to rate, review, and subscribe.